Crow Flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. Yoshi Bach, welcome to the podcast. Nice to meet you. I'm glad to be on. You know, it's funny, you and I have uh, known each other virtually, or at least I've known you for, I, I don't know, six or seven years, but this is the first time we've ever been interacting as close to face-to-face as we are right now. Yeah, it's interesting, right? It's- the pandemics cause that sort of thing. So I'm going to start off by giving my audience a little bit of background about you and fast-forwarding uh, kind of why I have you on the podcast you are a guy that I um, found through Twitter that was that talks all about how human beings make decisions and how are human beings different than the way that uh, computers think and how do you um, create artificial intelligence is somehow binding those two together. So I've known about you for years and a few months ago I started seeing you post about coronavirus and for a while there I thought it was kind of cute. And then I started seeing it all the time, and I eventually wrote you and told you that I felt like you had a had the virus in your brain, and that I was admonishing you for for being so loud about it. And I thought you were really harming your reputation. And now, fast forward a month and a half, I am nothing short of ashamed of doing that um, because I was wrong and you were right. And so I wanted to bring you on and find out how did you see this coming and what do you see coming in the future. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you very much. So we have uh, known for uh, about risk of pandemics for a long time. That is, um, epidemiologists for many years have said that the question of the next global pandemic is not a question of if, but of when. And uh, I book this down in the back of my head as something that uh, people that are paid to professionally worry about these things say, uh, which means they do look for a particular type of black squan event and they look for, for the possibilities of this event. And they're relatively smart people and they're well educated on these topics and they probably have a point. Uh, but uh, I was not that much concerned. It was not that I was constantly on the lookout for. It was just when I saw what happened in Wuhan and how quickly this got out of control. And when I saw the measures that the Chinese uh, government, after a short period of being undecided what to do about this, implemented, and I saw that this was crossing the border, it was relatively clear, uh, given the um, rate at which the infection spread, that this would not Uh, die out outside of the borders of China unless similar measures would be used as if they were being used in China. And it was uh, obvious that um, Southeast Asian countries, the like, uh, South Korea and Singapore and Taiwan, were uh, using these measures. They were taking this very seriously. Other provinces in China were also acting on the intelligence uh, of Wuhan uh, directly after they had the first few cases. And the Western countries were all not doing this. And as a result, it was pretty obvious that all the Western countries would get it. I mean, also all the, the third world countries are going to get it, yes. But uh, it, it seemed to be inevitable. Uh, I saw basically, for me, the flipping point was somewhere in early, mid-January, that this would pretty inevitably happen. And it would be a matter of time until we would react. And what really concerned me was um, that our institutions maintain the idea that we can get by with uh, out containment and that just, just let's burn let this burn through the population 
And this was extremely concerning to me. I thought that they probably will redecide at some point, because when you realize what the mortality is on this, and you realize if you don't do anything, then the number of dead people in the US will be something between a million and 16 million people. It, it's not the end of the world, but it will be remembered as a Holocaust level event. And when the actual dying Holy start, shit. I've never heard anybody say that, even all the way up until this point. Like, you're the first person to say this is a Holocaust level event. That's uh, pretty stark. Yes, basically, uh, when Mark Lipsitch of Harvard uh, explained that uh, he thinks if this goes to the entire population, uh, we're looking at 40 to 80 percent people that get infected at some point. And uh, then if you looked at the Chinese mortality rates and uh, the fact that if a lot of people are infected at the same time, something north of a million people with, an, uh, with active symptoms, um, then this will lead to a complete collapse of our medical system, which means most people that need intensive care will, are not going to get it. And everybody who needs intensive care and doesn't get it dies, right? This is the definition of intensive care, which means uh, we are looking at the mortality rate at the upper range of what you saw in China. So basically similar things as happened in Wuhan at the uh, top of the epidemic would be things that would be seen in the US. And this was basically my upper limit when you, when you look at what's going to happen. And so if you have 327 million people uh, and 80% of them get infected and uh, uh, between uh, 2 and 4% of them die, that's pretty staggering, right? And uh, so I thought, no way, this is something that our governments will let happen. But the difficulty is that they will probably not try to be ahead of the crowds. Our political leaders are not selected for being very far ahead of everybody else. And the public consciousness was uh, much more complacent. And the other thing that irritated me was that the US was implementing norms on um, not being concerned about the virus. I, uh, I thought it was nice of you when you tried to warn me that I was jeopardizing my reputation. I didn't see this as uh, something negative. I, I thought that you were genuinely concerned, right? But uh, I also thought, what is Van seeing that I am not seeing? And uh, what he is seeing is probably uh, the public sentiment. He is part of of a, a hive mind that punishes you if you think the wrong things, right? Yeah, and we've <laughs> talked about that for for our entire relationship. It has been you gave a talk that changed my life. So uh, just so people have a frame set for who you are, you're not an epidemiologist. You talk about uh, artificial intelligence and how to, how to really understand what's going on with things like machine learning. And I came across your work right as I was trying to figure out why is it that people believe things that are absolutely untrue and yet they're rewarded for believing them. And, um, and so I really developed an entire hypothesis about how people believe what they believe. And I, and I talk about you literally everywhere I've gone. I've spoken to more than 100,000 people talking about Yosha Bach says that we don't, you know very little at all. And really what you know is what your tribe believes and what is acceptable among that group of people. And I fucking did it to you at the moment that it was happening because you're exactly right. I was a part of the tribe that was the people that were saying, this overreaction to coronavirus is just that, and it's and it's bad. And you are one of those people that I don't even know that you really see social norms. Do you? 
not really, no. It's uh, it's a very weird concept to me. I mean, I can infer the existence, but it's an agnosia in a way. What do you um, mean? It's, I mean, uh, like, because to me, you know, I see them all the time. That's who I am, is the understanding of social norms. Right. You know, there are people which cannot see faces. Uh, this, they are able to see that there is geometry on, in the front of your head, uh, but they are unable to tell people apart by their faces. And it was puzzling to me. I even had a colleague, a uh, very, very smart guy, who was not able to tell his students apart by their faces. He was doing this by the sound of their voice and by their height and by the color of their hair and so on. But he also never looked into their faces. And when he talked to them, he also could never notice uh, whether they lost interest or what they were at. So he mostly came across as manic and disconnected, even though he was a brilliant mathematician and musician and so on. And uh, it struck me that his brain is completely sophisticated. There was nothing wrong with his brain at some level in the sense that there was a general disorder. I think what was missing was a very particular kind of attention, one that very narrowly focuses, especially on faces. And this hypertrophied attention for faces is something, once you pay attention to it, you notice it, right? You walk through a crowd and you cannot help but looking at faces all the time. And... This, that gives us an extraordinary uh, model of faces that is much better than our model for teacups, right? We don't have a really good model for teacups uh, compared to faces. And it's basically our brain gives you a re special reward for being able to recognize a face and figuring out what it's doing right now. And there is an evolutionary reason for having this extraordinary hypertrophied attention, even though it's distracting you from all the other things that made me going on in the crowd. And uh, I suspect for... Uh, types of mental states, especially normative states of other people, there is a similar thing going on. It's, uh, it's intrinsically not very interesting to look at what people feel all the time, because it's always the same within a certain range, right? It's like the colors of their shirt, why would you pay attention to everybody's shirt color? There is a certain range of shirt colors, and in the same way, there's a certain range of moral opinions that people have, and it's very interesting to know the range. But it's not that interesting where particularly this person comes down in this range, right? It's not interesting what a random person on the street thinks about Trump because they like only five opinions about Trump. And so the novelty of that is relatively low. It's very difficult to say something completely new about Trump. So uh, in, this, in discussions that I have with friends, our opinions about Trump don't play a very big role. Unless somebody has an extremely big insight that uh, leads us to, onto new territory. And I think my particular type of disinterest in these normative opinions that people have is because I am a nerd. And very simply speaking, a nerd is somebody who thinks that the purpose of communication is to submit their ideas to peer review. And normal people understand that the main purpose of communication is to negotiate our alignment. It's very important what other people think about you because this will determine whether they give you a job. And if you look at the list of requirements for jobs, then the ability to think independently and think deeply is very low on the list, except when you are signing up to be a quant or something similar. For most jobs that you have, even in public administration and in academia, it's much more important that you are able to sync up with the groups around you. And the ability to think thoughts independently of the group is, uh, has marginal values at best and is often a hindrance. And so had you ever taken a position that was as heterodox as this one? I mean, 
you were putting out you have a relatively large public following and of the people that follow you they really care what you say and you were taking a heterodox position that that could have put you in the in the camp of being the boy who cried wolf having people never listen to you again on something like this yeah at some level i don't really care about what people think about me and there are, this is a selection function that basically selects for uh, people that are interact with, which are wired up in a similar way and which respect the autonomy of an intellect. I've, it's not necessarily a strategy that I would uh, recommend because uh, <laughs> also objectively, uh, there are very few things in the world that do require thinking independently about them. It's mostly when you try to solve problems, like when you're a coder, it doesn't help you to think the same thing as your group. You have to figure out things from first principles and get the complete chain of causality right and implement it in your computer program and the computer is not going to budge if you use any social criterion to try to convince it. So uh, if you are, say, a physicist or a computer scientist, then this kind of thinking is quite natural. But if you are out in the social domain, especially in a country like ours, which is quite postmodernist, um, then this is, has very little utility. There are very few situations where it's useful to have an opinion that is different than the opinion of your boss and your peers. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, I, I remember that being like a cold smack in the face when you were like, it's very rare that there's a situation where going against what your boss wants is helpful to you. And you're like, gosh, you're right. So going with the coronavirus in particular, did you test out your ideas about coronavirus among your circle of friends or with your family before you started putting this out on social media? What, at what point did you decide um, it's it's beneficial to my... I don't know. I mean, are, are you putting things out in Twitter just to see if people will question you? Find a better uh, idea? I use uh, Twitter as an interactive notebook for the most part. So uh, I will put uh, out ideas that I think are interesting uh, and that are not too controversial in the sense that they would get anyone in trouble. But uh, I am willing to uh, go out on a limb. I'm willing to take uh, epistemological risks because it's interesting to see the feedback. And the nice thing is when you have 10,000 followers on Twitter, it's not that I interact strongly with them or try, try to cultivate them or try to maximize my appeal on Twitter, then I would have to use a very different strategy. Uh, it's mostly that I uh, enjoy the opportunity of saying something that normally, in, if you go to a random place in the world and you uh, utter this idea, you will not find anybody who can relate to it. <laughs> but if you have a well-curated Twitter following that is very resilient to the things that I am saying, then the chance that uh, five people have to say something interesting in response to uh, anything I can come up with is pretty high. Which means I have uh, somebody to engage with these ideas and help me to develop them further. With respect to the coronavirus, I was very hesitant to say something out loud at first, because I am highly aware of the fact that I am not an expert on this topic. And I thought it's dangerous if I mislead people on this. I did read what uh, the experts were saying. It's not that I delude myself into thinking that I know better than people that do this for a living. But I also noticed uh, the division that existed and the reasons why people interacted in, in different ways on, on this topic. And I noticed that there was relatively early on something like a consensus between um, people that were um, working in epidemiology 
uh, that basically stopped them from saying things out loud before it was too urgent. And this got me very concerned. And I thought it's because they operate in an environment where they feel that there's a risk to their career if they go too far away from the general consensus opinion. And this leads to a publication bias where people basically limit their predictions to a, uh, to a benign range where they are much more conservative than they ought to be in their statements and they are not willing to err on the side of caution. But they err on the side of a conservatism that is between uh, what they actually fear is going to happen and what they think the public will swallow easily. And, I mean, it seems uh, like the Overton window, right? Like that yes, the, they exactly. and and you have cultivated where you're trying to get on the outside to close to radical, if not unacceptable, ideas. And the people that you're talking about publishing, in order to stay in academia, they got to go way closer to the center to, if if not popular ideas, at least sensible or or something in that range. Yeah, I'm not a contrarian. It's it's not that I think the mainstream is wrong and I am right based on what. No, it's. Uh, I felt that is that this point for me uh, when I started tweeting about this. I think it was um, early February, or late January. Uh, I, I had my first first public things about this. It was. Uh, I felt okay. If I'm wrong on this, I will have egg on my face. Uh, but if I don't say something out loud and try to shift the needle a little bit and uh, get people an idea that they should be looking at at this topic more. Uh, I have a responsibility in some sense to warn people around uh, about this, right? Uh, I thought, and it's a very unpopular opinion, the coronavirus might actually be worse than the panic about the coronavirus. And, uh, right, uh, this this idea, oh, the panic might be worse, uh, this made no sense. There is not a log logical argument. It sounds good, but it's probably not true. If this is actually a pandemic that will kill um, many of your grandparents, and also many other people and leave many people with lasting disabilities and give you if you uh, try to have herd immunity and it turns out that the immunity doesn't last very long right many cold coronaviruses give you immunity only for a few weeks and then you can't get it again and there are other viruses uh, where the immunity lasts only for a year so uh, you know if you have a situation where we let this go through the population and a million of uh, people die and uh, another two million people have a lasting uh, lung disorder, and you have this every year. This would be a disaster, right? So I thought... Is that, that, um, is that right? I guess you know, I, of all the people I've heard talking about it, I have assumed an immunity that you get afterwards. Like It's like the chicken pox and, hey, if you make it through on the other side, you're, you're going to be okay. No, it's not obvious that you get immunity uh, for uh, coronaviruses. Oh so, man, uh, you're blowing my mind. <laughs> so uh, it's it's possible, but the, uh, it was too early. And uh, if you actually read up on this, you could f figure out it's not clear if you actually get herd immunity. So I, I thought, oh my God, this is an extremely risky gamble. Even if they are willing to uh, sacrifice a few percent of the population, so we adapt to this, it's not clear that we actually adapt to this. So uh, the, basically the risk that there are... Uh, playing this is probably too high. And that's why I was concerned. And I said, okay, you know, my own reputation, what is it worse? Uh, I've basically managed to carve out a niche in this life for me uh, where I can survive on thinking independently. It's not because I'm better than everybody else. It's often because I am able to look at things from a different perspective and I'm willing to do so. 
right? Yeah, yeah, these speaking, people are important to have. And, yeah, let's and, use and this. I mean, <laughs> the, one of the things that you did, I believe this would have been after I had already come to the realization that, wait, Yosha's right, coronavirus is serious. You wrote an article that took what was becoming mainstream accepted knowledge, which was we've got to flatten the curve. And if we do these light measures of social distancing and a few other things, then we can make it instead of that big spike that that Vox was showing, we can have this little spike and the area under the graph may all be the same, but we'd rather have it over over an extended period of time. And that became dogma within a matter of, I don't know, hours from when it came out. And you wrote an article that said, at one point I saw it titled, The Flattening the Curve is a Deadly Lie. And that was like um, a, a cold splash of water on me when I read that to realize just how dangerous this thing was if, if we got out of hand. So could you give a summary of, of that article for people that didn't read it yet? Yeah, what uh, basically happened, you have all seen this Gaussian curve, which is a very coarse approximation of how such a disease would play out. And then there was the idea, we, if we just uh, stay at home and wash our hands uh, and uh, basically wash our hands very aggressively, uh, <laughs> we will be able to uh, spread out the disease over a much longer range so our medical system doesn't get overloaded. And you could see this dotted line in, in the curve. Uh, which was like at the third of the situation where we don't do anything or maybe at half of it. And uh, so uh, if we would just basically flatten this out a little bit, we would spread out the curve so much that it would fit within the range that our medical system would be able to handle. And uh, I thought uh, this this is a wrong intuition because uh, the dotted line is actually much, much further down because we are not going to overload if you don't do anything our medical system by a factor of two or three, uh, but by uh, orders of magnitude. It's probably going to be a factor of more than 10. And this means if we just uh, try not to sneeze at each other, we are not going to get this down sufficiently. The thing was way more infectious than people gave it credit for. I was very concerned when I saw the situation in Japan with the cruise ship. The Japan sent several quarantine officials on the ship. And these are people that are probably trained uh, to deal with situations like this. They are concerned about infectious diseases. They probably wore fast masks, uh, face masks and uh, gloves, and they washed their hands a lot. And a lot of these people got infected after having been on the ship for two hours. There was one guy who was just guiding passengers from a distance of a couple meters um, off the ship. And he was there for two hours and he got infected. And I thought this uh, thing is really something to be concerned about. This is not just going to go away if you all wash our hands. So uh, the, the other thing is, if we actually go for the herd immunity thing, how much would we have to flatten the curve to get it down to the level of what our intensive care units can handle, even if we double the number of intensive care units in this country? And uh, I thought, my God, your intuitions are completely wrong. You have to put numbers on the curve. So I put some numbers on the curve and I did a few simulations uh, in more detail at home uh, where I also tried to look at the actual spreading of the disease and so on, but I decided not to go with complicated models because my complicated models were just something that a nerd comes up with at his computer and people eventually would have discussed all the decisions that I would have made in the model instead of the the faulty intuition, right? I wanted to make clear your basic intuition of flattening the curve 
is faulty. If you believe that you can have the same number get infected just over a longer time span and your medical system will be okay and you will still be able to go to a doctor if you need uh, brain surgery or if you need to give birth. Get in a car accident. Right? Yeah, that's right. Yes. So you're, you're wrong. This is not going to happen. You're going to overload your medical system for an extremely long time. And uh, even if you try to flatten the curve. So what we have to do is we have to squash the curve. And let me Doesn't interrupt just, just for a second because... I was reading the article and I'm kind of going along as I'm reading it. And then I noticed that you pointed something out that I, I mean, I took statistics, I took graduate level statistics. I have an understanding of them, but I realized, wait, Yosha's right. They didn't label their axes. There's no numbers on this graph. They're just saying it's either a big pointy curve or a slow, like lower curve. And I realized I am I am completely uh, beholden to propaganda. I have literally no way of understanding this other than what other people tell me. And so I was reading your article with a sense of awe because it made me realize just how vulnerable I had been to this group think and didn't even know it. So when I wrote this, I, I tried to make it as tight as I could make it within uh, a day in which I wrote it because I thought... Uh, we need to push the needle on this in the public perception. So it's palatable to implement lockdowns as early as possible and to uh, make severe measures as early as possible because this is actually going to save lives. And uh, I got a lot of criticism for this. Oh, you did? Yes, of course I did. So uh, it turned out that a lot of uh, people that I uh, value very much that uh, I, I know as independent thinkers that are also um, people that know medical science very well. People like um, Andrea Watson and uh, Jim O'Neill and uh, that uh, are experts in, in this area that I look up to uh, told me, you did well. It's good that you wrote this thing. And this relieved me at the time, even when uh, other people said, uh, how can you put out such a thing without being an expert? And uh, four days later um, was the study of the Imperial College in London that had much, much more detailed simulations by actual experts. And they pretty much came up with the same curves as I did. Right? They put on slightly different numbers, but they still had the same order of magnitude effect as me, which was my point. And uh, so uh, I thought it's a good thing that other people are doing the same thing. I think that the people in, in London were uh, motivated by the same impulse, they wanted to uh, to flip the needle in the UK policy to uh, say, we, we cannot sit this out. We need to implement lockdowns as early as possible. And I think they had a great influence on policy making in Europe. And so um, right now in St. Louis, Missouri, on I don't, I'm not even sure what day today is the 24th. Is that right? I don't even know. It's uh, it's a Wednesday. Any, in St. Louis, there are a bunch of hospitals that have shut down all elective surgeries and they've brought in all of these nurses and set up all these things. And right now, as far as I can tell, they're empty, right? They're mm -hmm. not filled with coronavirus people. Is this because we caught it in time and we squashed the curve or is it because we're waiting for hell to be unleashed by this disease and it's just a matter of time? So according to my best models, and I hope that they're not true, uh, is, and it's possible, but uh, I think that um, we will see the big storm beginning um, this next week and uh, second half of next week, probably. 
And what do you mean by that? Why? <laughs> the, so for the, the people that aren't that we, as acquainted with numbers, that's the thing. No, the measures that we have implemented uh, will probably uh, do flatten the curve in the sense that we will no longer have the same exponential growth of cases as we had until last week. Right? We now have lockdowns in many areas. They not stringent in all places. Often people ignore them and so on. So we will have ongoing infection outside of families. But uh, whatever we've done is going to show its effect only in a couple of weeks. The incubation of this is relatively long. Uh, it's typically between four and uh, 14 days. And uh, so people get, uh, will become symptomatic, many of them maybe in a week. And the people that uh, need uh, medical care for them, it's um, hospital care. It's often going to be basically after two weeks. And this means that the majority of the cases will come a little bit later after um, the infections. You also have to think that, uh, bear in mind, this is an exponential phenomenon, which means you have a doubling rate. And uh, this, if you have a doubling rate of, say, three to six days, it means that if you have uh, a thousand cases now, then you have uh, next week something like uh, 4,000 uh, cases. And the week after that, you have uh, um, 16,000 cases, right? And uh, you quickly get to a million cases within a few weeks. But uh, initially, you don't see it so obviously. There's this uh, good uh, thought experiment. Um, imagine you have a lake and you have water lilies growing on that lake. And the water lilies are uh, doubling every day, the leaves of the water lilies on the lake. And after 40 days, the lake is completely covered with water lilies. After how many days is half of the lake covered with water lilies, right? And many people will say maybe 20 days, right? Because that's halfway. But if it's an exponential growth, then it... The 39th it, day. Exactly. Which means that after half of the days, uh, you will not see that much growth, right? The water lilies will not look that concerning after half of the days. This is the nature of exponential growth. There's also a thing that I realized um, during the um, early days. I was following a lot of people that had similar thoughts as me and uh, was discussing things with them. And uh, Tyler Cohen wrote an article about uh, the base raiders uh, and um, the uh, exponentialists. And uh, he said that a lot of messy people, a lot of nerds, would be prone to be exponentialists, which basically think that the world is best explained with simple mathematics, because exponentials are very simple mathematics, right? It's, it's not that it, this stuff is complicated at all. It's just not very intuitive. But in, in their experience, the world is best described by mathematics. And uh, there's a few simple formulas that you can use to predict things that people can intuitively not uh, predict. And the base raiders are people that basically look at what happened in the past and they see that the world has many complex and mitigating factors. So things don't uh, usually turn out that badly as some people would predict with simple mathematics. And I said, yeah, he totally has a point. This is the way we operate. And it's not necessarily that we are wrong. The, the math people, the mathy people will be better at predicting black swan events, things that didn't happen in the past that we didn't see coming based on previous observations, but that are possible based on the intrinsic logic of how the universe operates. So they will catch certain types of events. And uh, f in all the other cases, 
the non-mathy people will tend to be right, that the probability is based on past observations, right? So uh, if we do the simple math, we realize, oh my God, 60 million people are going to die. When we look at the past is whenever something like this has happened, people have implemented things that's, that stopped it. So it's unlikely to happen. And that is, this is true, right? There will be complex things that will happen as soon as the uh, rates of sick people go up, as soon as people get more concerned about this. And not all of these measures will be predicted ahead of time with simple mathematics. And so um, maybe I shouldn't be that concerned. And I thought, but to make this happen, to get the base writers to be right in this situation, we have to warn them. We have to make sure that they implement these measures as soon as possible, because every day that we wait is going to kill a few 10,000 more people possibly in the world. And so what do you think prompted the government to start taking things so so seriously? Do you think the the mathematicians, the exponentialists got in there and, and made their case? Or why did it suddenly change? I suspect that there is a certain inertia among the experts that takes a while for them to come to terms with what's going on on the ground. And initially, they felt that the economic cost of um, containment is too high, and we will not be able to enforce it. And the social cost is too high, because this is a democracy. You cannot just implement authoritarian measures. You have to have to buy in from the population and from lots and lots of stakeholders that you cannot just discipline. And you can also see that this is happening, right? There is a complex negotiation going on where people say, maybe it is okay to sacrifice the grandparents. Or at least some of them. Yeah, or, or what is the cost that we're willing to pay in order to sacrifice those parents? But from what I'm hearing you say, it's, look, you're not just sacrificing the parents. The economic cost is to keep the numbers from going from a few hundred thousand to a Holocaust level of a few million. Yes. And it's also, I think, when you make these decisions, important to not be guided so much by emotional intuitions. Right? You cannot save anyone. You can only postpone the death a little bit. This is the nature of how life works, right? So people cannot be saved. What we have to look at is uh, how many uh, healthy years of life are being lost, for instance, and what trauma is being caused in society and uh, how are we going to uh, hold up with this? And you can also try to come up with the economic impact of these things and the cultural impact of these things that is also real. Uh, but uh, to say, okay, uh, if we can save a thousand lives, uh, this has infinite value because the life of every human value is infinite. This is a little bit naive to say, right? There's also this fact that if you shut down the economy, people will die as a result of that because there will certain things that are not being produced, like some medication will not be produced or distributed. And uh, there will be secondary effects. There's the question, will people actually starve? If we manage to uh, organize this well, I don't think that anybody will starve. I mean, if we actually squint and look at the society, 80% of what we're doing is producing landfill or uh, documenting uh, transactions. Right? <laughs> this is what most people are working in. Yeah. So, uh, and our main product are probably casino tokens, right? A big part of our GDP is financial products. And it could actually be that a crisis like this is good for our economy because it lets us reconsider what's valuable to us and uh, how we need to allocate resources. But as long as we can feed everybody and uh, people go unemployed, but we still feed them, 
uh, we are okay as long as this, there's no social unrest and the infrastructure doesn't blow up. But all these nice restaurants, the casinos and they're on, they will all come, come back. Yeah, I uh, so this is a lot of what I started doing with these interviews started as a result of I wanted to see what people around the world were doing. So I talked with a lettuce farmer down in Arizona, a grain farmer up in Montana. And I think that our food system, the people growing it, is very strong in the sense that it doesn't take that many people to to be able to produce the amount of food that we need. The holes that I see are much more in the supply chain. So it's you know, it's not just enough that you grow grain, you've got to process it and you've got to move it. And the the processing and moving become very complicated very quickly, right? It, it's not enough to raise a cow. You actually have to have it slaughtered and then moved around to different parts of, of the country. And you have to do it at such an enormous rate. If you've ever seen people harvesting lettuce for us to be able to eat day in and day out, we are no different than locusts. We've just decentralized how, how mm-hmm. we're how we're getting it all and i uh yeah i i was feeling pretty good about the supply chain um and i'm not panicking by any stretch but of course today amazon came out and said we have people in i think six different facilities that have contracted coronavirus that's going to be happening in supply chains all over the the world not just the u.s but all over and that's the thing that makes me say like hey things could the Overton window is kicked wide open and, and crazy things can happen as the system starts having, we start finding out just how resilient everything really is. I think that really irked me was the mask discussion in the US because uh, the Surgeon General told the people on Twitter that they should stop buying masks because masks don't help the general public. Yeah, they did. Also, uh, they are necessary for uh, the medical system. So, uh, at this point, basically, every nerd said, you guys just voiced, uh, voiced the contradictions. Masks help, but they don't help you. For no reason, <laughs> right? What, why are you saying this? Uh, and some of these nerds get really upset. Uh, because you need to be a normie to be able to understand that statement as logical. You need it to was logical to me. I, I, was, I was flying on planes, and I knew yes, about coronavirus, and I had yes. masks sitting in my house. Right. So this guy is an anointed authority, basically something like a priest, and therefore what he says must be true. And I thought, oh my God, this is so stupid, because uh, I understand the uh, motive behind this is, I mean, the Surgeon General just casually admitted that didn't occur him to him to order masks for the hospitals in January, when this was inevitably coming. Right? If, uh, there is, it's not that the world is generally unable to produce masks, but the supply chain is not arbitrarily elastic. It takes uh, basically a, a couple months to make more of the raw materials and to set up the production chains, but it's possible. So what would have happened, uh, would have needed to happen is to increase demand in January. Basically put out all the orders in January, especially for the government suppliers, uh, for the government needs. Uh, but this didn't happen for some reason. I thought, this is impossible. Why are they not doing this? They must have paid experts, which look at these things. And it was not apparently happening. And the Surgeon General was not concerned about admitting that he was unaware of the fact that uh, he would need masks for the hospitals and healthcare providers before even the last idiot in the public noticed and went to Home Depot and bought everything. Also, this idea that uh, the hospitals would go to Walmart and Amazon to get masks uh, after the public did 
strikes me as stupid. This is not how you do your supply. You, you typically have a separate B2B supply chain with very specific certifications and you don't get a sanding mask and 95 from Home Depot. The fact that our healthcare providers are now using these uh, is not a testament to our level of preparation. But it's uh, it, when you look at the actual studies, there is not a single study that I am aware of that says masks don't help the general public or they only help you when you're already infected. And there are, it's relatively easy to find a number of studies that tell you that yes, do, masks do help against respiratory diseases, even when no, not used by uh, experts. And so we suddenly had all these stories of um, medical professionals telling the public how complicated it is to fit a mask and that the mask doesn't help anything if you don't fitted an extremely complicated day-long procedure with lots of aspartame and other people that help you while you hop down and uh, test the fit of your mask. It was completely bullshit. It was a non sequitur. I, I don't doubt that this fitting exists and that it makes a big difference, uh, especially if you are a medical care professional who is working with highly infected people in large numbers at very close distance, right? There's a very different situation than when you are in public transport or when you go to a supermarket and you rub sharp shoulders with some people there, uh, of which some are infected, but still it's a matter of reducing viral load. Yeah, that's what I've heard lately or read something this morning about... Um that the dose is really important. How big mm -hmm. of, a, of a coronavirus dose do you get may determine how sick you end up getting. So somebody that's exposed to a family member by being in constant contact with them while they're going through their incubation period, way higher dose than if you're passing by somebody and happen to breathe some in. And if you have a mask there, that they're saying that might be why South Korea, Japan, Singapore, those places were able to contain it so much faster. Yeah, if you look at a country like Singapore, uh, if you think of Singapore as a patient and you think of every infected patient as a virus in Singapore, right? You have a similar thing going on. If you start with a much smaller number, you can do contact tracing, you can mount a response, you have ICUs, you can deal with this in much easier ways than when you are in a situation as Iran, where when you notice the disease, uh, it's already spread very far and very wide and even some people in government are affected and now it's very difficult to mount a response. And this is the situation that you're probably in when you are a healthcare professional and somebody is coughing into your face and you end up with a much, much higher initial load of uh, viruses in your body. So your immune system uh, has uh, no time to prepare while the invasion force is relatively small. So with your amount of time to prepare, what did you do to prepare your family? What what actions did you take that were out of your normal path? I didn't, uh, probably didn't do enough, but uh, it struck me, uh, you know, I have a garage, I can put up a chest freezer. And uh, I've been living in uh, cities since uh, I'm a teenager. I do grew up, did grow up in the countryside. And I remembered at home, uh, we always had a couple chest freezers. And if we got snowed in, uh, we would have been independent for a couple of weeks without noticing any difference. I, I, I thought chest freezers are super cheap. So why not have a full chest freezer in the garage? And then I thought we need gloves. Gloves are super cheap, but you will want to have a lot of them. So you can unpack packages and when you go shopping and so on, it's much more practical to take off your gloves than to try to wash your hands in the supermarket. So uh, small things like this. Are you still going out? Do you go to the grocery store? 
Uh, at the moment, we don't go to the grocery store um, uh, because we did our shopping uh, like a couple of weeks ago, mostly. And it's, uh, at the moment, there are uh, delivery services. I think that delivery services are preferable because you can disinfect the boxes before you get them into the house. So it's much easier than going into the grocery stores. And I think I will go back into the grocery stores after they have adapted to uh, suitable measures. So I think it's crucial that everybody in the supply chain is properly protected. And it's clear when you tell everybody that there shouldn't be a mask and we need masks first of all for the medical system, which is of course completely true. It's crucial that our medical providers are protected. It's much more important than our that our immune system doesn't break down before everything else breaks down. But the supply chain also needs to be protected. And the higher up people are in the chain, the better protected they need to be. Because if somebody high up in the chain is protected, they can infect everybody that comes after them, right? So uh, I'm very concerned about uh, delivery service workers that don't have personal protection because they are going to go to a lot of houses and they're going to potentially interact with a lot of people and touch a lot of things. They're also going to touch a lot of boxes. So it's even more important that the people that pack these boxes are protected. And so the further you go up in this, the, the more important it is to harden people. It's a non-obvious thing, but you should be testing everybody who works high up in the supply chain. Man, I, uh, I mean, as, even as I'm hearing you say this, because we've done a good job, I think we unpack things outside or I unpack things outside and I try and uh, disinfect all the boxes. But uh, yeah, it makes you wonder if you should just stop and live off your stores for a while because it's, it's better just to see how this thing's going to play off. I, am, um, I became probably more sensitized to the danger of coronavirus early because my wife's pregnant and we're having our mm-hmm. first child and you know, there's just no data to know how this is, is going to impact things. There's some people saying, Hey, don't worry, it's going to be fine. But these are the same people that told us we didn't, (laughs) we didn't need masks. You probably saw uh, the data about the Spanish flu, right? In pregnancy. I did not Um, know. No, there is a whole flu generation uh, from the uh, uh, 1918 Spanish flu. Uh, where uh, children in the womb were damaged by the flu. So it had grave impacts on IQ, earning potential, uh, mortality, and so on, and life expectancy for this generation that was in the womb while uh, this epidemic happened. Wow. And uh, so uh, this is a thing that uh, you want to be concerned about because uh, it's an obvious thing when your wife gets sick uh, that uh, the organism will use as many resources as it needs to fight the disease. And these are all resources that are not available for the fetus. And uh, it's potentially a very serious disease that can lead to lasting disabilities. It's especially concerning if you have pneumonia uh, and part of your uh, lung tissue turns necrotic. And this means you have a permanently diminished lung capacity, even if you recover. And of course, this uh, has an uh, impact on the ability to uh, deal with, uh, to, uh, to nurture your fetus very well in your body. So uh, pregnancy is certainly something where I would raise the alarm and say, make sure that you don't get infected if you can help it. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, that that's 100% what we're trying to do. And I 
think that they I know that they've suspended all IVF treatments in the St. Louis area because they're saying we don't know. And you've got these people that are going to extraordinary measures to get pregnant. And uh, man, it is no small thing, I'm sure, to suspend all IVF treatments in a region because the time is not on those people's sides that are doing that. Yep. So um, what do you think people should be thinking about now? You know, we're in the middle of chaos and people are saying, I don't have a job. I'm stuck at my house. I don't know where the economy is going. But if you're saying you have a limited bandwidth, limited things you should pay attention to, what you know, what should they be? If they're a normie, how do you weather this storm when, when you're completely subjected to the whims of the propaganda the, of the people that, that want calm over necessarily the right answers? I don't think that uh, there is this either or. It's not that there is a part of the population that is super smart and sees everything objectively and the other one is completely deluded. Everybody can get enlightened. It's just the past is very different. And, uh, so it, it's not that nobody can see what's going on. It's just something that you have to question yourself and catch yourself and uh, deal with your cognitive biases. The, the crucial thing in this situation is that we have to um, basically try to put common sense over normative opinions. And the common sense is, is not the, what the majority of people thinks, but the things that we, if we ask ourselves what's most likely to be true. And the things that are most likely to be true are independent of what somebody with a strong opinion is wanting you to believe. It's just the thing based on the facts that we have that's most likely corresponds to the universe that we are actually living in. And the situation right now is, uh, from the standpoint of the economy, is very dire, right? We, if we put a couple trillion dollars on, on this, that's an enormous amount of death. It's going to be doing very serious things to the dollar and to the stock market, and most of these things are not good. But uh, if you look on the ground, it's not going to diminish our food supply. Uh, also, I'm not concerned about the supply chains in the sense that I mean, we will have 30% unemployment. There will be a lot of very capable people that we can use to, uh, to help with the situation and put to work. And I also want to be put to work. I found that a lot of people actually find this uh, crisis not anxiety-inducing if they can do something. So uh, as soon as you feel that you can organize a response in your neighborhood uh, or wherever you are working, you feel better about this and you can do something about this. So I, I think it's very crucial to exchange phone numbers with neighbors and make sure that if they are singles or elderly people, that you can look after them. It's also a main thing with the mask discussion that was very concerning to me. You, you need to have masks in your home, I think. Uh, at least a few of them, not just because to protect yourself when you are in the supermarket and there could be some germs in the air, but uh, there is a high probability that at some point you will be called upon looking after a person who you know to be sick. But you need to uh, put give somebody something to eat because they cannot go to the hospital and uh, they are so ill that they cannot make food for themselves for a while. Like if you have the flu and so on, you, uh, and you're down with it, you probably need a spouse or somebody else to help you, right? And in, there will be many people in this situation who don't have anybody to look after them. So this is a crucial thing where everybody can help mounting a neighborhood response. Make sure that you build a network and support the existing networks, especially with elderly people and those that are dependent on the help of others. 
I think that's uh, the best the best advice I've heard of anybody anywhere. I, I know we've called our neighbors, people that we've lived by for a couple of years now and barely have spoken with, and it's been one of the, the best things to happen. I mean, people are truly uh, grateful when you call them up and say, hey, I just wanted to check and see how are you and let you know that you can call us. So it, there's a, a way to spread goodness in this time of chaos, I think. So, Yosha, I'm going to end with the with the question I've asked every person I've interviewed, um, what do you think the world will look like in two weeks? I think in, in two weeks we will be in a situation where there's panic. It's basically, I suspect in two weeks from now, there will be a storm pounding us and this will last for something like one more month so, until the current lockdown measures start to show a visible effect. The good thing is, uh, if we implement lockdowns and as soon as the situation becomes more dire, the measures are likely to go into be much more stringent, uh, it, uh, we will get a better situation. Because if people are no longer uh, moving outside of the house and are no longer meeting anybody who's not a, a family member or with uh, protective equipment, there will be no more new infections. And as soon as an area has no new infections for a couple of weeks, we uh, can lift the uh, blockages again, right? We can move again. And this so this can be over much sooner than some people are aware of. Right now, a lot of people and government seem to think it's going to take 18 months. But if we do this right, uh, we will stomp out this virus. There's a situation that concerns me is that we will basically have red and green zones in the world in a few months from now. There will be countries that will not be able to afford the measures that are necessary because they don't have the necessary level of organization. And I think the US will find it within themselves to reactivate these levels of organization. The reason why um, the US is so incompetent and is unable to build a subway or high-speed train uh, anymore is not because everybody in the US is suddenly stupid. It's because our uh, government is, uh, is no longer confronted with existential crisis for a long time. Right? In the 50s, the US was still facing existential risks. There was uh, an active war going on. Later on, we had a Cold War. And the more things became safe, the more the country turned from a modernist country into a postmodernist country. God, you're right. You're totally right. Of, yeah, so government in, in peace times, if you wait for a couple generations, turns into a theater. It's a theatrical performance. And when people evaluate the performance of politicians, especially the media, they... Uh, basically evaluate the quality of the acting. And uh, the media is very concerned about Trump because he's such a lowbrow actor. He's basically not playing to the audience of the educated critics. He is playing to an audience of largely uneducated critics. And uh, they don't like that, right? And they don't have enough self-awareness largely to understand what's going on. And that uh, them denouncing Trump increases his popularity with the uneducated critics, right? So when Trump uh, says Chinese virus, then uh, Vox will reflexively condemn his racism. For 60% uh, uh, of the uh, nation roll their eyes and, uh, and Vox is helping to get Trump reelected. This is a, a thing that is concerning to me because it doesn't seem that uh, our current administration is perfectly well equipped to deal with this crisis, right? It would be very nice to have very competent people in power. But, you know, the, the larger the pressure becomes, the more uh, the people in charge uh, will be inclined to let actually competent people to take over. 
and implement the measures that need to be done. Because these people do exist. Right? There are systemic thinkers. It's just that they're no longer in demand in, uh, in times like the ones that we had in the last few decades. So we will probably end uh, after this crisis with a slightly more competent administration, with a slightly more productive economy, with slightly better awareness of what this is all about when we build a society and a civilization. And it's also going to bring people more together. So I am pretty optimistic for the future. There's going to be a time after the crisis where people feel, oh my God, uh, we got through this and now there's so much opportunity and we are rebuilding things. And um, so even though the next couple of weeks uh, things are going to look bleak, uh, I think in six months from now the situation might be looking much, much better. And then we get the media walk. I mean, this is 2020. This is amazing. <laughs> I mean, I, and, and everything you're saying to me uh, intuitively makes sense as I hear you say it. So, Yosha, I, uh, I would probably really like to come back in a couple of weeks and, and check in with you and see how things are going. I know that I, for one, am deeply grateful that, uh, that you're not a normie and, uh, and that somehow <laughs> we made this connection a long time ago. Uh, if people want to follow you, you are at Plins, P-L-I-N-Z, and uh, you're fun fun guy on Twitter, but right now kind of scary, but I think probably in a good way. <laughs> thank you, Vance. So thank you, and I hope you have a, a, a good time with your family while you're in quarantine or while you're in lockdown, and uh, be safe out there, Yosha. Thank you. You too. Thank Bye-bye. you.